The following episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, to provide continuing medical education for physicians. For more information on how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org university. This episode is supported by independent educational grants from Estellas and Pfizer, Inc., AstraZeneca, Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Lantheus Medical Imaging, and Merck & Co., Inc., Good afternoon. My name is Jay Robin, and I'm professor of urology at Penn State Health and chair of the AUA's Office of Education. It's my pleasure to host another episode in our educational podcast series with this specific episode titled Germline Testing and Novel Approaches to Targeting Genetic Mutations in Prostate Cancer. It's my pleasure to really host two uh, thought leaders in the field, and I've actually had the pleasure to have hosted them previously, and they're always kind enough to volunteer their time uh, to join me on these podcasts. Uh, the first is Dr. Veda Giri. Dr. Giri is professor of medicine at the Yale University um, uh, Hospital, and she's a medical oncologist with a specialization in clinical cancer genetics. She's division chief of clinical cancer genetics at the Yale Cancer Center. And my other guest is Dr. Todd Morgan, who's a Jacklapedes research professor and chief of urologic oncology at the University of Michigan uh, School of Medicine in the Department of Urology. He's a translational surgeon scientist, and his research really spans a full spectrum of uh, prospective clinical trials, but he has a, a big footprint and, and a big research base in prostate cancer. So first and foremost, uh, Veda, uh, Todd, thank you so much. Really appreciate you both uh, joining uh, this evening. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Jay. Um, well, maybe we'll just start off, and, and just before we sort of dive into the the, the podcast, maybe <laughs> if either of you could just give me or give our listeners sort of the, the 20,000 foot view, the big picture of what we're going to be covering, and then obviously we'll, we'll sort of dive into it in a little bit greater detail. Sure, Jay, I'd be happy to. You know, this is this is an important topic for both Veda and I both really it's it's something that is near and dear to our heart uh, to our hearts in just trying to improve prostate cancer care and um and, and it's it's a topic that I think even though we talk about it a lot in in the urologic oncology field that is we still have a long way to go to provide better care for patients um, with prostate cancer and thinking about how germline genetics impacts that care. So I think the goal here is we wanna talk about the criteria for criteria for genetic testing, who should get tested, what we do um, in terms of our recommendations to help manage patients with different mutations, um, help, how do we interpret results of, of these tests because it, it's not always straightforward uh, and ultimately utilizing these results to improve outcomes both in early stage prostate cancer or patients maybe who we don't even know have prostate cancer, how do we screen them? And then also on the advanced side of things. That's super, that's, that's a really uh, great sort of overview. And, and I think you've, you've phrased it uh, really well. So I guess let's just start off. You know, I feel like when, when we talk about genetic testing for prostate cancer, it's, it's really, or genetic testing in general, it's really a broad term. 
And and I and maybe I'll just start off by asking you both, just in the realm of genetic testing, maybe give our listeners a little bit of a sense of what is what is germline testing, what is somatic testing, what is the difference between them, and, and maybe we'll just start with that as as a basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. Yeah, I can happy to uh, take that part of the question. So. Um, yeah, and I think it's really important to understand those differences, as you've laid out, Jay, about um, not all genetic testing is the same, not all genomic testing is the same. And so, you know, uh, listeners may hear these terms used interchangeably sometimes. What we're talking about really here is germline testing. And germline testing is actually hereditary cancer gene testing. So um, this is inherited genetics that we're looking at. And uh, what we're going to talk about coming up is w- what's the utility of, of, of this testing? How is it being used clinically? Um, that's differentiated from somatic testing or let's say tumor testing, uh, where now um, we've really come to the forefront of when we talk about next generation sequencing technologies, um, this kind of tumor testing or somatic testing can be helpful to identify mutations in the tumors themselves or shedded by the tumors as well um, that can be used for targeting therapies for the most part is the big reason for that somatic testing. Um, There are some things to think about because sometimes those tumor tests or somatic tests can actually you know, identify germline mutations as well. So there may be some crossover there, but that's kind of the general category of those somatic tests. There's other ways to get at the tumor genetics, which is circulating tumor DNA, cell-free DNA, which is another um, genomics modality now that is available for patients, um, clinically speaking, where there's some variability in, in use of that. Um, and then there's sort of the, the um, uh, genomic testing that's been done for a long time in terms of looking at um, um, you know, expression, classifiers of expression. And so um, maybe there I'll hand it over to you, Todd, to talk about that, because that's been used in urology practice for a very long time. Sure. I mean, this, so this is something that comes up a lot when patients come in and they say, well, I've had genetic testing, but you don't actually know what they've had. Um, and it's, it, I think I blame partly us because our terminology is relatively imprecise. What's genomics? What's genetics? And, and really maybe genomics really, we should think of it as all encompassing. But the way we talk about it, really, when we say genomic testing, we usually mean one of the three tissue-based gene expression classifiers like Prolaris, the GPS score formerly known as Oncotype and Decipher. Those these are tissue-based, usually used for patients with newly diagnosed prostate cancer, helping to guide some type of decision. Um, and they're all prognostic. They are not inherited. Um, they are not, these are not, are, not, are not testing for inherited genes. And that's like the main point I make with patients. Different. And so we're so really the topic of this podcast is the inherited side of the, the genetics that's passed along from parents to kids. And that's totally different than the tissue-based gene expression classifiers. That's great, Todd. And, and I think you're totally right. I, I feel like sometimes patients will come in and they've had this tissue testing and they say, yep, I've had genetic testing done. And, and they're, they're, they're not entirely incorrect in that. I, I think what we're looking for when we're asking that question is something more uh, based on sort of the hereditary mutations and the germline profile. So maybe you, you sort of brought up a great point, which is the point of this podcast is really genetic testing. Uh, and we're talking about, you know, prostate cancer, this podcast. So what are the guidelines for who should get tested? Um, and, and maybe we'll even go one step further, which is, um, are there some specific gene panels and, and how do we actually get this 
this uh, information? What do we test? What what you know? What uh, blood, saliva, uh, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, sure. Yes. Yeah, so um, there's a, actually a lot of guidelines, and guidelines have expanded for thinking of which uh, patients would qualify for uh, prostate cancer germline genetic testing, and. Um, one of the biggest sources, of course, of these guidelines is the NCCN, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. So, um, and you know, other professional societies as well have guidelines that um, bring forth the expertise of those societies. Um, you know, for germline testing, you know, AOA has had um, guidelines as well and continues to update those guidelines. And it's really important to uh, take a look at you know across the board, but primarily for insurance coverage of patients for genetic testing, they uh, companies rely on the NCCN guidelines, and so. And from the NCCN standpoint, um, you know, every patient with metastatic prostate cancer would be offered, uh, is recommended to be offered germline testing. And that's because the rates of germline mutations have been reported in men with metastatic disease anywhere from 11 to 15 percent, depending on the studies. Um, And also, it's now becoming more relevant from a therapeutic standpoint as well. But of course, to identify hereditary cancer syndromes for these patients and their families. Um, But beyond even metastatic disease, for patients that have high-risk disease, um, advanced stage, T3 or higher, um, higher grade group, 4 or higher, those individuals don't need to have any family history to meet NCCN criteria for germline testing. So it's kind of blanket indications. Um, Other indications for males would be if they're of Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry and they have a diagnosis of prostate cancer, they would also meet criteria, again, because of the higher rates, primarily of BRCA mutations um, in those individuals. The remaining criteria, for example, lower risk, um, earlier stage disease, or for men who don't have a diagnosis of prostate cancer, but in terms of thinking of risk, are really based on family history criteria. So family history really becomes important to glean for these patients, um, thinking about maternal and paternal family history and across cancer types. I think that would be one teaching point, you know, is to think about all kinds of cancers in these families in male and female relatives. So breast, ovarian, prostate cancer, pancreatic cancer, colorectal cancer, um, endometrial cancer. And the reason for that is because the family history is looked, we're looking at patterns to see, does it identify specific hereditary cancer syndromes, like hereditary breast and ovarian cancer, where prostate cancer is a part of that syndrome, or Lynch syndrome, which is, you know, hereditary non-polyposis colorectal cancer, but linked with a host of other cancers. Um, And uh, of course, hereditary prostate cancer, looking at generational prostate cancer, earlier onset of prostate cancer, et cetera. So, Family history guidelines can get more complex, but if we want to keep the top categories, which are blanket indications, I think that becomes really important uh, to ensure that we're not missing those patients, you know, in those categories for germline testing. And then, Todd, maybe the, the follow-up question is, um, what what sort of panels do, do we use and, and how do we actually test? Sure. So, so just to add a little bit on to what Veda said, that you know, one of our big challenges in urology is that we are dramatically under testing patients with prostate cancer. And so, it, you know, I think, you know, whenever we, I talk about this, I also emphasize the importance of taking a really excellent family history. And yet we don't take a great family history. And so that is a little bit of the reality. We need to do better. But we also, if we could just hone in and say, we are going to recommend testing for everybody with metastatic prostate cancer. And we're going to talk about this with everybody with high-risk prostate cancer, that gets us probably 80% of the way there. 
And so that's a really good, important place for us to start. And then, yes, we have to take a really a much better family history and incorporate that into um, the counseling. In terms of the counseling process um, or the testing process, for in terms of the panels, you know, we're talking about DNA damage repair genes by and large. And there's some, uh, you know, the HOXB13 is another one that's that predisposes patients um, to prostate cancer. But when we're really thinking about patients with prostate cancer, we're talking about BRCA1 and 2, are the most important most common mutations in um, patients with prostate cancer. And then from there, there are Lynch syndrome genes. There are some other DNA damage repair genes. Um, ATM is a really important one. And, and ultimately, when we order testing, usually it's through an external lab. It's going to be blood or saliva. Um, there are a number of different labs. There are also um, many academic medical centers will have in-house labs that can do the testing. The upshot is the panels are going to be, they're going to be 15 genes or 20 genes. There's also often an option to test for 60 genes or 80 genes or 100 genes, you know, and we need to ask ourselves, boy, if, we, if, if we're going beyond the 15 to 20 genes that we know have an impact in prostate cancer care and breast cancer care and ovarian cancer care and pancreatic cancer care and colon, et cetera, um, then we start get going to these maybe more peripheral genes, what we don't really know what the implications are, then what are we going to do with those results? And especially when those results come back as an uncertain gray area result, like a variant of uncertain significance. So in general, we're talking about these 15 to 20 genes um, that are known to be important in prostate cancer care. So Todd, the last point you made, which is really, I think, ties in a little bit to the whole counseling process. And and as you said, you know, the more genes that you assay for, the more potential abnormalities you may find, some of which you don't really know what the clinical significance, or at least in 2023, we don't really know what the clinical correlative significance is. So maybe, you know, I'll, I'll sort of pivot the question and say, okay, um, clearly we need to do a better job. Clearly, um, genetic testing in, in patients with prostate cancer, particularly high-risk prostate cancer, metastatic prostate cancer, is critical, and we need to do a much better job. And, and now we'll get to the how, how do you, we do it sort of question. You know, what, what is, how should we be counseling the patients beforehand? Maybe let's start with that. What are sort of the key components of actually counseling the patients when you're introducing this concept of genetic testing? Mm -hmm. Sure, and I'm happy to start with that. And um, the, the there are really a couple different models for this, and Veda's written extensively, really some some great articles on, on the different ways of approaching this. Um, the most our most important role as a clinician is to identify the patients, right? We are we're, we are seeing the patient in clinic, and if we don't take that first step of identifying the patient and bringing this up with them, then it's not going to happen. From there. There are the, the two main different models are saying, okay, we're going to identify the patient, we're going to bring this up, and then we're going to refer to cancer genetics and really emphasize the importance of making that connection. And that's a really important and successful way um, to approach this. The challenge with, with that is that there are not enough genetic counselors and there's a lot of genetic testing going on across oncology and outside of oncology these days. Um, and depending on where people live and what health systems they're in, there may really not be any genetic counselors, at least none available in a, a reasonable time frame. And so then we look at other approaches. And so we can use telegenetics, video-based counseling, um, whether in real time or kind of asynchronous, or we as the clinician can take it upon ourselves to get educated on how to do that counseling. It's really something that we can learn. Um, this is our pr approach and our 
uh, U of M neurologic oncology clinic, both on the on medical oncology and urology side to say, okay, we're, we're going to take the, the key points that we need to discuss. We need to talk about why, why we're doing this, why it's important, what the implications are for the patient and the family, what the potential results could be positive, negative, variant of uncertain significance. We need to talk about cost. We need to talk about genetic discrimination and the GINA Act, the um, Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, which has some protections, but they're not kind of airtight, watertight protections and go through those steps. And then if the patient agrees and would like to proceed with testing to order the test, which we can do working with again, an external lab. And then when we get the results back, make sure, of course, we close the loop like we do with any test, but especially this test with the patient. And when they, if they have a positive result, then that's, you know, say 10 to 15% of patients that we are then making that handoff, that referral to cancer genetics. And so that, so that, that, you know, that's, that's, again, that's one approach that we take, but Veda, I'd love to hear what you, you know, your take is on this. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree that um, it's, it's sort of the gold standard or the uh, standard of care approach with referral to genetic counseling is, is um, vital, but not sustainable given the volumes of patients that need genetic testing. And so I encourage um, practice clinical practices to build those collaborations with cancer genetics and be proactive with that and think about the models that work best in your practices. And so um, in, if it's a straight referral to cancer genetics and that, that um, you know, processes there, there's a team available to see patients. That's terrific, you know, and and exactly, there's a lot of elements to discuss in this kind of uh, pretest counseling for these patients because it is hereditary cancer testing. We can uncover cancer risks beyond prostate cancer, even though that can be the focus of why testing is being done, but these patients may end up having risks for other cancers identified for themselves that can warrant high-risk screening or approaches like pancreatic cancer or colorectal cancer risks and other things that if they didn't know that up front could be blind they could be blindsided you know by that information and so that pretest information is really important um, you know these variants of uncertain significance that um, uh, Dr Morgan brought up is it's a real possibility with the multi gene panel testing that we do these days about a third of patients will have variants of uncertain significance identified and so really important to let patients know that there can be uncertain findings that don't uh, change medical management. But those VUSs over time, a rare percentage, like less than 5%, could be reclassified as more data is gathered, more scientific evidence to we know more, and this is actually a pathogenic variant, i.e. a mutation. And so um, patients, again, need to know that this was, I was first told there was an uncertain finding, but now you're telling me there's a mutation three years down the road or something. So this information is all really important to deliver. How that's delivered, you know, with a, a genetic counselor uh, is, is terrific because it's incredibly thorough. But just as Dr. Morgan said, there's not that capacity all the time. So point of care has become a really important way of delivery of this information in the pretest space. We use point of care as well here um, at Yale and Smilo Cancer Hospital as um, one of our three ways that we're delivering care. Of course, one is genetic counseling. The second is point of care. And we give our clinicians a, a pretest video to show their patients and set them up with the labs that they can order from so that it's kind of worked out for them, you know, systematically. And then they refer on the back end to genetic counseling, to our cancer genetics program. We've just started a fast track program in this past year where we've hired genetic 
coordinators and basically taken point of care and embedded it in cancer genetics. And this is a fast track approach for those patients that blanket meet NCCN guidelines. And we know they're going to be covered by insurance. They see the coordinator and basically they view a video and they get expedited visits and they get their testing ordered. And again, those with mutations would be seen by a genetic counselor, all within the scope of cancer genetics, such that because some clinical practices just can't manage point of care either. It's a very, it's busy in, in practices. So we've given three options and we're looking to expand in all different ways to help meet the demand for, for this. And it's a very important important area to address. That's amazing. This is why I like doing this kind of podcast uh, to learn what you guys are doing. That's really incredible. Yeah, we're looking to expand Fast Track as well because it's been one of the most successful ways. And some of the clinicians, uh, particularly in oncology, that we're doing point of care um, have, because there's other things to deal with when you're doing point of care, like the clinical practices have to do the pre-auth and, and a lot of the steps to take to order the genetic test. We absorbed all that in, in Fast Track and they switched to doing Fast Track because it uh, it just helps them to ease their clinical processes. So we're, we're going to actually expand our Fast Track approach. That's so awesome. just based on uh, two of the things that you both covered in the last few minutes, I'm going to ask each of you a question. Maybe I'll start with Veda. Veda, talk a little bit about... Um, I think the question that comes up very practically, especially if you're going to do this in a point of care setting, which is uh, cost. Uh, is my insurance going to cover this? And what is the cost that I will have to pay? So maybe just take that question first, if you don't mind. Yeah. So, um, so most insurances will rely on the NCCN guidelines for coverage of genetic testing costs. Um, costs have come way down. I mean, they used to be, you know, $3,000 now, um, you know, and, and this has changed recently. So I'm going to say until the recent past, the typical out-of-pocket cost was about $250 out-of-pocket. But if, you know, for most insurance plans, they'll rely on the NCCN guidelines. And so, for example, men with metastatic prostate cancer, high-risk disease, or meeting specific family history criteria, they will have their, uh, usually have their um, insurance be able to cover the cost of genetic testing. Um, you know, other plans can be a little trickier. And so it's really important for, to check with the insurances to ensure that, you know, the, the cost is covered. Um, recently, I think there's been some changes in the policies of the labs. And so this is where, you know, genetic counselors are really up to date on a lot of these policy changes for coverage of testing. Um, I think some of the labs have now in implemented more of a sliding scale for based on income for out-of-pocket costs for uh, coverage. And um, how are patients notified of potential costs out of pocket, et cetera? These policies are changing. And so really important to connect with the laboratories to understand what their new policies are. They, they can happen, you know, in, in sort of in a frequent fashion. So, um, you know, it, it, but for the most part, insurance will cover it if the patient meets, you know, NCCN guidelines for testing. Todd, the question I had for you, you briefly mentioned it, but maybe uh, talk to me, uh, talk to us a little bit about, you, you mentioned the term GINA. Uh, just talk to us and just educate our listeners. What, what exactly is that? And, and maybe what are, it, it sort of plays into the whole realm of some of the pre-test pre counseling, uh, but maybe just talk a little bit about GINA if you don't mind. Sure. I mean, so this is, um, this is a, a federal act that was, you know, it's maybe 10 plus, probably 15 or so years old at this point. And it, the, the purpose of it is to prohibit genetic discrimination in health insurance and prohibit genetic discrimination in employment. But there are some carve outs and ca you know ca caveats that we at least need to mention to patients up front. And we give everybody a handout on this. Um, 
is, is and that's kind of a, a simple, easy, like straightforward way for us to approach this as a like one pager. But the, the punchline is that it does not uh, protect against discrimination in life, disability, or long-term care insurance. And it also doesn't protect individuals who um, work somewhere with fewer than 15 employees. And so these are a couple like really key unique carve-outs and um, how often does this really come out in practice to like to impact true discrimination as a result of genetic testing? I think it's rare and yet still we, like you, we, we have to mention this up front and people have to be able to be able to make an informed educated decision. Mm -hmm. Don't, you know, it would be, it would be awful for us not to mention this and for it to come up later on. So that's part of the pretest counseling process. So we, we've talked um, a lot about just uh, obviously the patient population for prostate cancer. We've talked a little bit about potential implications for that patient with regards to risk of um, other malignancies that they may have or their family may have. But I, I think sort of some of the, the big maybe game changers in prostate cancer, for example, in the last five years is really using the germline testing as a means to refine therapies that we offer patients. So um, maybe let's talk about that and, and uh, I'll turn it over to either of you, but you know, how have we been able to to harness this, this information from germline testing to actually perhaps offer patients more targeted, more refined treatments for uh, advanced prostate cancer? Yeah, absolutely. It's really been a um, sort of a revolution in um, treatment of prostate cancer, particularly in the metastatic setting, to have um, drugs that target uh, specific mutations. Um, and we're seeing this across the board in multiple cancer types. Uh, we see this in ovarian cancer, in breast cancer, pancreatic cancer, and prostate cancer. And so actually one of the biggest drivers of referrals to cancer genetics is for precision therapy or precision medicine indications to see if there's a, a genetic you know, mutation that could be open the door for eligibility for targeted therapies. One of these groups of or classes of, of drugs are called PARP inhibitors. And these particular agents... Um, are, um, uh, there's more clinical activity for those patients that have um, uh, defects in homologous recombination repair or DNA uh, damage uh, repair uh, mutations. And so there's been actually, you know, initially two drugs were approved in the setting of metastatic castration resistant disease um, upon progression of even, you know, upfront therapies for MCRPC. And now there have been multiple drugs that have been approved uh, that are PARP inhibitors approved for um, uh, uh, patients. And so like in the first line setting for MCRPC, um, particularly for those patients and, and beyond, if they were previously treated with abiraterone, enzalutamide, um, men with mutations in a host of homologous recombination repair genes, about 14 of them would be eligible for olaparib therapy, olaparib monotherapy. And then in addition, um, for patients who may carry mutations in, in 12 of those genes, talazoparib is now approved in, uh, in combination with enzalutamide, um, regardless of, of prior um, androgen receptor signaling therapy uh, inhibitors. And so we have you know, these um, agents. But interestingly as well, um, for men with specifically for pathogenic alterations in BRCA1 or BRCA2, um, they're actually eligible for first-line therapies um, in the metastatic castration-resistant setting with um, olaparib plus abiraterone and niraparib plus abiraterone based on um, two studies, the Propel study and the Magnitude trials. And um, 
and so, you know, and then we have rucaparib as well in terms of um, uh, therapies with uh, prior treatment with ARSI and chemotherapy. So it, it's become actually even more complex about what prior therapies a patient has had and progressed on. And are they eligible for PARP inhibitors based on their germline testing or even tumor testing, of course, you know, because um, in, in, in a sense, it, it could be either, but as well as more upfront therapies. It's really opened the door in terms of thinking of new therapies that these patients could be eligible for, uh, now FDA approved, and then certainly in terms of clinical trials that are ongoing. So uh, maybe a related question for either of you is uh, the, the treatment paradigm for advanced prostate cancer is that obviously many of these drugs are first vetted in a in a late stage sort of setting, uh, namely CRPC, maybe refractory to several other therapies. And certainly if we looked at some of the novel hormonal therapies, we see them marching earlier and earlier into the treatment paradigm. Um, your thoughts on whether maybe PARP inhibitors uh, will will move earlier into the treatment paradigm? Are there studies and trials being done investigating that very question right now? Or maybe similar sort of concepts with any of the other sort of targeted mechanisms based upon genetic testing? Mm -hmm. Sure. I mean, I'm happy to speak to that a little bit. But there's, you know, Jay, we, I mean, we have never had good neoadjuvant treatments for patients with high-risk prostate cancer. And and that's been, I mean, a decades-long quest because because we know that, um, especially with patients patients with high-risk prostate cancer, the recurrence rates are really high, and and so most of the neoadjuvant trials historically have focused on targeting the angiogen receptor in some way, but there are there are that I know of um, at least two neoadjuvant trials focused on patients with mutations in DNA damage repair genes, and um, one is a SWOG trial uh, being led by Heather Chang, and that um, I think is activated now. Uh, and another is a phase two trial being led by Rain McKay. Um, and I, Vid, you may remember what um, the Rain and McKay's trial is using, um, but uh, Heather Chang's trial is, is a platinum-based mm -hmm. neoadjuvant treatment. And so, and so one of the theories, not really just a theory, one of the things we know about patients with mutations in DNA damage repair genes is that they're, in addition to being more sensitive to PARP inhibitors, are also more sensitive to platinum. And so that's another approach in this, uh, in this setting that's, that really has a lot of promise. And so that's, you know, this, um, this is something we'll need to see if it bears out, but huge potential to bring this type of true precision-based medicine into the neoadjuvant setting, which we so badly need. So maybe in the last few minutes, I'll, I'll I'll sort of talk about or ask you both a little bit about the implication of of genetic and germline, specifically germline testing, and uh, impact on on creating disparities and and perhaps those that maybe have access uh, to um, germline testing and implications seemingly a positive way for their care and those that don't. Um, maybe if you, if either of you could talk a little bit or both just about, you know, germline testing, genetic testing specifically, and, and sort of the impact on disparities in care. Mm -hmm. Sure, I'm about to start. The, the, this, I mean, any progress that we make often, um, and this has been a really big progress, we, progress we've made in the last 15 years, it has a risk of, um, separating out the haves and have nots. And so, so who has access to genetic counselors? Who has access to um, 
to say tertiary medical centers um, or other large community practices that are that are really um, doing you know, offering genetic testing. And so that's one piece of this. And then the other is where where is the data coming from? And so we know that um, many underserved populations are not included in the clinical trials to figure out what you know what which treatments are going to be best in a given setting and in the context of genetic testing they're they're underrepresented in the studies that are identifying the key mutations in a given population and that we use as a reference to compare against you know a mutation versus a reference population that tells us if it's a mutation if it's a, it um, lets us figure out if it's a variant of uncertain significance um, versus a pathogenic mutation mutation and so um, black populations for example are very much underrepresented in these um, in these genetic studies and so um, that you know it, it's a huge area of interest it's a huge area of need but still something that we've fallen well short of and again this is something that beta's worked a lot on so I'm really curious to hear what you have to say yeah I, I think it's you know, it's it's just so important to keep this in front of mind as new uh, technologies, new tests, um, treatments are developed is is to pay attention to um, underrepresented, underserved populations from the, the two aspects, you know, access to care and also um, engaging with the populations for uptake um, and being able to have that communication um, across the board, across various populations. And so exactly to what um, Dr. You know, what Todd was saying is it's so important if you look at these, uh, you know, minority populations or in cities where it's, you know, majority minority populations, we still see underrepresentation in clinical trials and in genetic studies. And, um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, and understandably quite a lot of mistrust in thinking about genetics, historically speaking, and, and to the current time in terms of thinking of engagement with genetics, what does it mean to have genetic testing and, you know, in engagement in clinical trials. And so overcoming that mistrust really takes a very concerted effort in linking um, clinical centers, academic centers, researchers with the community to build those connections and to have you know, relatability to this information. So I think, you know, centers have to develop resource materials, whether that's, you know, print in multiple languages, in, um, you know, having um, minority individuals embedded in clinical teams to deliver this information, in research teams to deliver this information. We recently held a roundtable conference to address engagement of Black men in prostate cancer genetic testing. And, um, it was really fascinating to hear a lot of the community members' perspectives about the, the challenges, hesitations, and opportunities to really get you know more engagement. And um, so, what it really came down to was creating those links between healthcare organizations or academic centers or clinics with your communities and really help to ramp up that communication about genetics and make it accessible. And so working with community organizations becomes really crucial. But policies have to change too. So in terms of, you know, adequate insurance coverage, um, you know, uh, thinking about more engagement of um, diverse populations in research to get an understanding of what the genetic variants are. You know, we know that variants of uncertain significance are reported at higher rates in um, non-white populations. A lot of it is because we just there's not the data, the reference data to compare to. So um, getting clarification on a lot of those variants would be a huge step forward. So um, that paper is it's actually under review for the what the results were, but I think it'll be informative. You know, we wanted to couch that such that it could be used across 
clinical settings and community settings to help, you know, really address disparities. That's super. That's a, a really good, uh, I think, take home at the end of this. Well, I want to, Todd, uh, Veda, as always, uh, these are always fun for me to do. Todd said he always likes doing these with Veda because he learned something. I like doing them with both of you because I, I certainly learned something. And uh, it's really always a pleasure to hear uh, both of you. Very thoughtful and uh, really uh, do a great job. And I think taking uh, a topic that I think is fairly intimidating, to be honest, for a lot of urologists and really, I think, distilling it down to some of the key things that can be implemented in practice. So I, I really do want to thank both of you very much for your time this evening. Oh, it's great to be here and always great conversation with, with both of you. I, I learned so much from you both, too. So thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Uh, to our audience, uh, thank you very much for joining. For more information, please visit us at auanet.org university. Again, Veda and Todd, uh, happy holidays to both of you and your families. And I look forward to seeing you sometime soon in person. Thank you. Take care. Goodbye.